This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Our scripture today comes from Luke chapter 12. We'll be in verses 49 through 53, so hear the word of the Lord now. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you. Rather, division. For them... For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome and good morning. I'm, I'm Jeremy, a redneck from North Carolina, uh, one of the pastors here. Uh, at the Axis Church, and it's great to be with you. If you haven't already done so, do find yourself here in Luke chapter 12. I believe it's around page 100 in your field journals, Luke chapter 12. And uh, if you don't have a field journal, there's some out in the lobby you can go grab and take as your own. There also should be Bibles around the room scattered under the seats in front of you. This is our 60th week in our study through the Gospel of Luke, a, a series that we've entitled The Real Jesus. To establish some context here and where we're going and in, our, in our time for today, because these words are strange uh, that Jesus says here. Um, but Jesus is making his final journey into Jerusalem, his final journey through the Middle East. Uh, he's teaching along the way. Disciples are learning. The crowds are swelling and the people are being changed, and those who are in the religious authority, those uh, Pharisees, the religious elite, uh, they do not like the things that Jesus is doing or saying. Um, and earlier in chapter 12, Jesus, he teaches about the dangers of hypocrisy, the blessings of generosity uh, as a means of fighting the drifts towards uh, covetousness and greed, and then he teaches on anxiety and then last week, we, we, we were taught by Jesus as he essentially took us from the dust of the Middle East here on earth to the heavenly judgment throne of Almighty God. And it's as if he peeled back the pages of the future and allowed us to have a glimpse forward to the moment of final redemption. It's as if he took us to a place that we haven't experienced even yet, let alone 2,000 years ago. The culmination of all things, the redemption and reconciliation of all things. And so we're still in that context for our passage today. Jesus is still speaking prophetically. He's still speaking with apocalyptic implications. And so it's with this in mind that we go to Luke 12, starting in verse 49. Here we go. He says, I came, I arrived to cast fire. And the term there literally means to cause discord to cause division, to change things here on the earth, on this land. 
And I wish, oh, oh, would, would it already have been kindled? I wish that it would have already be set ablaze and ignited this fire. Now be reminded earlier, just three chapters earlier in Luke chapter 9, verses 54 and 55, his disciples James and John saw this unbelief and, and they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume these unbelievers? But he turned and rebuked them for such an idea. You see, this rebuke in Luke 9 comes for at least two reasons. And they speak into how we understand verse 49 of chapter 12. One is, it's not the disciples' job to judge in this way, right? And they were willing to call down fire. He's like, that's not your doing. But then the second and most significant to our time in verse 49, Jesus, he loves and has compassion on these people in Luke 9. He rebukes the disciples instead of the unbelievers. Because there's this compassion, this tenderness, this love towards those who were not believing. In other words, verse 49 of chapter 12, it doesn't show us a, a weak breaking point in the mind of Jesus. We don't finally get to see him crumble in frustration and angst. He's not suddenly over it with humanity. This would be completely and utterly inconsistent with all we see and know of Jesus up to this point in Luke and our study. But you see, there's more to verse 49 than what we see at first glance, and the reformer John Calvin helps us see it. He, he understood this passage to understand this fire is, that Jesus is bringing with him to earth to metaphorically refer to the effect of the gospel that will be set in motion through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Like a fire that's, that's often symbolic of the Holy Spirit, like a fire, the gospel will violently change things and alter things. And borrowing an analogy from Jesus, it will burn away the chaff and it will purify like gold and silver. I came to set this earth and this people ablaze with the power of God through my work. This is the essence of Jesus in verse 49. And unpacking more of this work, he continues in 50. And I have a baptism. I have, I'm going under. I'm going uh, in and under suffering. I'm going to undergo suffering and submit myself, much like the water, submitting yourself to water. I'm submitting myself to suffering. I'm giving myself to it. I'm going to be baptized with this. I must endure. I have this baptism of suffering to be baptized with that I must endure. And how great is my distress, this attack that I'm experiencing, this torment that I'm feeling within, my troubled spirit. I'm being seized with this distress. And I cannot wait until it's accomplished. Cannot wait till it's finished. I cannot wait till it's completed. There is such a weight and a burden of what lies ahead. Now, we can certainly see more of this anguish and distress. The agony is the word used that Jesus is shouldering while he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? The night of his betrayal by Judas. The arrest that would then lead to his torture and death. We see it in the Garden, but here we see it. Let's be careful not to limit the emotional difficulty and distress and struggle that Jesus shouldered only to the garden. This is a reality that he lived with every moment of his life. 
shouldering this and living with this was terrible. In our Access community, we always ask a, a group question. And I come up with the terrible ones. Others come up with the good ones. And we take turns answering it, right? And one question was, this was one of mine, would you rather know when you would die or how you would die? Right? It's a great discussion. Like, Welcome to Access Community. <clears throat> and you introduce yourself. You say your name and you answer the question, and then it's the next person's turn. It's a fabulous time. I don't know why you're not involved in one, quite frankly. <laughs> would you rather know when you would die or how you would die? Well, Jesus knew both, and he was constantly aware of his mission and his purpose. And he speaks of his purpose, and he speaks of his mission in verse 51. Follow along with me. Do you think that I've come to, to give peace on earth? Are you thinking that, that I've come to merely bring tranquility to this land? No, I tell you, no, but rather disunity, dissension, opposition, hostility, and division. Matthew 10, 34 records the same moment in the ministry of Jesus with the crowds and the disciples. Matthew 10, 34 records it as him saying, no, I tell you, but rather a sword, a dividing tool, something used to cut in two, which goes back to our passage last week. In verse 52, he says, from now on, explaining this division. In one house, there'll be five divided, five separated. For instance, three against two and two against three. And he continues to speak of the depths of this division. And they will be set against, or they'll be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Division. Separation set against even opposition. Now, it's clear through Scripture, right, that Jesus was a man of love. He was a man of deep compassion who came to bring peace. That his, that his message was peace on earth, peace through love. In fact, at his birth, right, Christmas, Luke chapter 2, glory to God in the highest and on earth, Peace among those with whom he is pleased. A lot of us are familiar with this passage in Luke 2. Yes, peace on earth. Peace is a theme of Christmas. Now, while the, these words of, of Jesus are strange here for a lot of us, imagine the power and the authority of hearing these words in the moment when Jesus says these things. What do you think the Jews were thinking as they heard Jesus say, No, I did not come to bring peace. But I came to divide. Or as Matthew 10 says, I've come with a sword. See, right here, Jesus is shattering the Jewish expectation of the Messiah. That is, the Messiah being a merely earthly and nationalistic leader. The Messiah, in their mind, would remove all the enemies of the Jews and give them national peace and tranquility. Peace from conflict. Peace from opposition peace from oppression, the end to their suffering as a people. And many viewed and understood Jesus up to this point because he knew their hearts and he knew that, 
that they were viewing him as the one who would bring a kingdom that would bring national peace. They believed him and received him on the simple basis of Jesus being the one who would put an end to all the threats of other countries, all the oppression of other peoples that they had, all these other enemies. And now, of course, this certainly included the Romans who were at this time occupying their country. Many were holding Jesus in their hearts as the, and their minds as the one who would deliver them from political oppression. They expected to be delivered from uh, the military threats. They expected a political, socialistic, national peace to come from the Messiah. And to this end, Jesus emphatically and clearly, and it's even on the record, he says, no, that is not my purpose. Here Jesus is clarifying his mission. He's speaking to their misconceptions. He's defining who the real Messiah is. He's defining who the real Jesus is. And we can never know a counterfeit until we know the true. We can never know a counterfeit until we know the original, the real. Now there are places in Scripture where we're taught that God brings peace. But here it seems as if it's rather black and white. Jesus says, no, no. Well, is this a contradiction? No, it's not. You see, it's true that God through Jesus Christ brings shalom. He brings peace forever and ever throughout eternity. But, but, but here, this isn't referring to shalom. It's another word entirely. It's not shalom. This is the idea of harmony. Harmony, not shalom. This is the idea, this peace here that he speaks of is, is the, it's kind of like, let's just get along with each other. You don't have to like each other. Just stop fighting. It's not true peace. Let's just look beyond our differences. Let's compromise so we can have peace. This is referencing the sudden hurling of the sword where peace was expected. Jesus does bring peace, but not as the world gives. Do you think that I've merely come to bring a shallow, simple peace to this temporal world? This world full of cancer and hate and racism and bigotry? This world full of trouble and calamity and sickness? This world that's, that's been so affected by the fall and so affected by sin? No. No, I haven't. Not in the way that this world understands peace. I've come to make peace, not merely on earth, but to create peace between those of this fallen world and my heavenly Father. And I've come to create a whole new world. This peace? Yes, indeed. Yes, I've come to create and make this type of peace a reality. And the peace I give is eternal. Be reminded of John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Not of the peace that the world understands do I give to you. So it's as if Jesus is saying, I don't want any of my disciples and followers to think for a minute that I came into this world to bring a type of peace that this world is familiar with and longs for, that it looks for, it desires and understands. This earthly peace that's marked by luxury and physical calmness and comfort. I did not come for this peace. This peace is, is too nearsighted. It's too temporal. It's too weak. I did not come to bring this peace. The Swiss theologian and reformer Heinrich Bollinger said this, 
about this passage. Christ truly is the Prince of Peace, and his kingdom is the kingdom of peace. He gives peace to those who are his, and he leaves peace with them, but it is a peace which the world cannot give. In fact, it is the peace which the world cannot stand and hates. For the peace of Christ passes all understanding. See, peace is often related to compromise, right? Let's have world peace. That means world compromise. It's, it's limited to agreements, like trading off. It's, it's peace is often related to, to two different parties working something out that one will give, one will take, right? There's this sort of bartering almost in the sense of a peace that we're familiar with. But this isn't the peace that Jesus is referring to. Ephesians chapter 2, 14, 15, and 16 gives us a look into this peace and how this peace comes to us. This is a deeper peace than luxury and comfort. This is a different peace than compromise. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments that's been expressed and known in ordinances, that he might create in himself one instead of two. So in this way, he's uniting, right? One new man in place of the two, so making peace. It's something that he creates. It's not an idea that two parties have together. It's something that wasn't, and now it's created. He's making peace. And this speaks to this peace, might reconcile us both, though we're different, you and I both, reconciling us to God, that's another type of peace, in one body, how? Through the cross, not compromise, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's hostility that exists that is antithetical to peace. Jesus kills that hostility, therefore what's left? Peace. But he does more than just kill the hostility, he creates peace. It's double peace. He, he creates, he makes peace, and he destroys and kills the hostility. His peace doesn't come with compromising with evil, but with conquest over all wrong, over Satan, over sin, through the triumph of the cross. Jesus destroys evil, he destroys hostility, he destroys sickness and death through his cross, not by striking up a deal with it. Not by compromising with Satan and death. He didn't come to, to make a deal with the enemy. He came to defeat and crush the enemy. And so the cross is simultaneously the most divisive and the most unifying event in human history. It does much more than divide our calendars. The slinging of this dividing sword is like the swinging of the mallet on the bench of God's throne. As the wrath of God was poured out on his son Jesus, as he took our sin, he suffered for our punishment for us. And in this moment on the cross, God the Father is in many ways divided from the Son and as he suffered the consequences of our sin. Our sin divides us from God and Jesus shouldered this division upon himself. This, my friend, is Jesus. It's who he is. It's what he's done. And believing him will save you and change you in wonderful, spectacular, eternal ways. And cherishing him above all else, treasuring him above all else, will free you from the cruel bondage of this present age. 
We must know that rightly viewing and understanding and receiving Jesus in this way, treasuring him, cherishing him above all else, this will inevitably cause division with those who don't understand Jesus and receive him in this same way. As Amos 3.3 asks, can two walk together unless they agree? It's, it's difficult to be close, intimate friends with someone when you have differing ideas about what you worship, about what you cherish, about what you treasure. It's difficult. It's difficult. I mean, it's hard enough to agree what to watch on Netflix, let alone what you worship. Jesus has come to be a priority. He's come to be the one who all will have opinions and beliefs about. He did not come to be irrelevant. He didn't come to merely be admired or liked. He came to be treasured and cherished. And to receive Jesus in the way that he came to be received as Lord and Savior, this will cause an obvious division between those who don't devote their lives to Jesus, those who don't find their identity in what he accomplished, and those who do find their identity, meaning, and mission for their lives in him, those who submit their agenda to him, those who surrender to his agenda for their lives. There will be a division. You see, Jesus didn't come to be casually received. He didn't come to be received on our terms he didn't come to fit into our agendas. And many, unfortunately, received Jesus in this way, and that's simply not Christianity, not according to Jesus. You see, the love for and the commitment to Jesus must supersede all the other loves in our lives. And historically, the Christian life has been marked by sacrifice. Historically, the Christian life has been marked by loss and suffering in so many areas for the name of Christ. Always has been this way. It always will be this way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's your opportunity. It's challenging to be intimate and close with, with those who like Jesus. When you're learning more and more what dying to yourself looks like. What taking up your cross feels like. What submitting all to Jesus and following him, learning more and more about what this means and, and what it looks like. It's difficult. It's a challenge. As we live more and more like Galatians 2.20, we simply won't be received by, by others in the way that we want. Where it says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And if that's who you are as a Christian, this defines Christianity, then people who, who don't receive Christ and live this way, there's going to be a, a conflict of ideas. There will be division. And this is what Jesus is speaking of here. He doesn't hate the family. It's not his point. He's addressing that this is the way things work. I mean, light and darkness, good and evil, life and death, this world and heaven. Stark contrast. There is no greater contrast. 
And I know from, se- from several of you that you're experiencing this tension, this division right now. This week you've experienced it. And it's a weight on your shoulders. Tomorrow morning you'll experience it and you're already dreading it. However, let's not allow this division to create a strange pride in us. This mustn't create a pride in us. We can't be proud of this. While while we sense this division between us and and those who don't follow Jesus in this way, this, this should, and friends, this must break our hearts with tender compassion. This difference that we feel between us and unbelievers, those who aren't Christians yet, this should not harden our hearts and, and present in us this sort of religious swagger and pride. We've got to be careful. There's been so much damage done to the city of Nashville by professing Christians and churches as they've celebrated and maximized their religious differences, priding themselves on the separation that exists between themselves and their church and the precious others in our city who don't yet know God as Father, who don't yet know Jesus as suffering Savior, and who do not yet know the Holy Spirit as Comforter. And this religious pride does nothing to help them see the real Jesus. What they do is they learn of a jerk Jesus from this sort of living that they say no to, as they should, but they haven't said no to the real Jesus. This is what is so problematic about living this way. And this is why we've spent 60 weeks so far understanding who Jesus really is from Luke. Again, this division, this reality, must break our hearts when, when we feel this, the tension of division. Go instantly to God in prayer. Don't get angry. Don't get in an argument. Don't get in a fight. In these moments, be known more for your humility and reasonableness than your angstiness and your pride. Sometimes loving others is better than winning an argument. The point of Jesus here is the love and devotion a Christian has for Jesus will become incomparable. The longer that the Christian lives for Jesus and His fame, and His glory, the longer the Christian lives experiencing God's forgiveness and grace and patience. Jesus says that He's going to be polarizing. He's going to be a dividing subject. People will have opinions about Jesus that will certainly differ, and loyalty to Jesus may sometimes cause conflict within a family. And if so, He must come first. Jesus must be priority. And some will inevitably choose to not follow Christ because of certain sentimental and family relationships. Jesus is stating a reality. There may be pressure from family members to not follow Jesus. He's stating a reality. And Jesus must be priority. But a comforting passage when considering the hostility that one may face for living the Christian life and obedience, right, is Luke chapter 18. We'll get there in a couple years maybe. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Family relations and social ties at times will stand in the way of loyalty to Christ and to righteous and holy living in obedience to Jesus. He's stating a reality. We receive this as truth, but we also must work very hard to love our families well and to not be jerks, to not burn bridges that we'll need the gospel to cross over on later. 
Jesus is calling us to be aware of this so that we won't drift into this. He must be priority in the life of the disciple. Priority. Number one. But how have you received Jesus? How do you understand him? How is it that you follow him? Is it casually? Is he like a Sunday savior? How is it? I mean, Christianity in America has become so passive and soft and even weak, and conformity and tolerance has become our default setting. And this results in us not speaking the truth of the gospel with others for fear that they'll feel they must change in order to have peace and hope. And this results in in sharing things about Jesus that aren't true so that others won't feel judged. And, And this results in us creating a Jesus that isn't real. A Jesus that we tell others about who won't bother to change anybody. A Jesus that has no authority. A Jesus that would never step on someone's toes or or call us out or demand anything of us, especially if it meant being inconvenienced. But a Jesus that can't demand something of you is not the Jesus of the Bible. A Jesus that doesn't step on your toes as he makes his way into your heart isn't a Jesus who can save you. A Jesus who never calls anyone out so that, they can be, so that he can be heard is one who can never speak life and light into the darkness of their soul. A Jesus who doesn't change people isn't the Jesus who died to bring people back from death to life. And so my prayer for us is that we would value the real Jesus and work and strive to know him above all other things. And to have the same mind that that Paul had in Philippians. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain my treasure. Jesus Christ. So as we work in this tension of division, trying to be evangelists, preachers, teachers, disciples, missionaries in this city, knowing that there's this division that exists between us and the unbelievers, knowing that we can't soften the sword of the gospel, that we've got to first be pierced by it daily ourselves and carefully speak words of truth to others Essentially, what I'm asking us to do as a church on mission this week is the same thing I'm doing right now in this moment. Taking very hard words and by faith preaching them as if they were the easiest words to preach. This isn't an easy text. This isn't a fun text. It takes a lot of faith to get up here in this cultural climate, in this this very secular city, to preach these sorts of things. By faith, I don't teach my ideas. By faith, I simply tell you what it says, and I trust that God will use it. And I try to do so in a winsome way, in a caring way, as much as possible. And there'll still be division. People will still assume the worst. And that's the reality that Jesus is speaking of. So as you go and share the gospel with others this week, Share the gospel with others this week. Don't don't dull the edge. 
just speak the truth in a loving and winsome, tender way and pray that God uses it. You know, all is front-loaded with expectations in Christianity. That's what I admire about Christianity. I mean, Jesus, Christianity in general, but Jesus specifically, he presents this truth to his disciples up front. There's no bait and switch with Jesus. There's no bait and switch with Christianity. There's no promising of something, and then you kind of get a raw deal on the back end. All this sounds very extreme. He's telling us fact, especially when considered uh, in the comfortable security of a society that at, at least tolerates Christian life and doctrine. And in some parts of the world, however, this today, this passage is too real and it's too relevant. Regardless of where you live or, or how you're received by others, you can't follow Jesus without having to make crucial choices of where your ultimate reality lies. This is a fact from this passage, and I love that Jesus tells us the truth up front. You will suffer. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. There's no, this is going to be easy. And on the back end, it's like sacrifice, suffering. So he's no, no, no. Sacrifice, suffering. This is normal. There's no bait and switch. There's no tease. There's no fine print. Well, as we consider these truths that Jesus gives in this passage, I want to give us two takeaways from our text here that I see as basic, not over-the-top, novel, but two basic ideas that's significant for our church. One, Christians are called to surrender. Christians have sworn allegiance to Jesus Christ above all else, and this includes their comfort, this includes their reputation, and as Christians, we're sworn to surrender our lives to Jesus and live for the glory of God above all things. This is the, this is the only way the Christian life can be properly understood. To read the Bible and to have a different concept of what Christianity is, is to absolutely, fundamentally misunderstand the teaching of the Bible. Your new life in Christ is called specifically to mission with Jesus. Christian, you have been saved for a purpose. Now, this isn't just like where you're going to work, though that's true. You've been saved for a purpose. You're no longer your own. You have been bought with a price. You're committed to live for the glory of another, no longer for yourself. Nothing less can be considered Christian. And Jesus is unpacking a reality that comes to the obedient, humble Christian. Anything less for the professing believer in Jesus Christ is disobedience. And as we realize that we're doing this, which that realization, that compromise, the realization of our compromise is a gift of mercy. As we realize this, we must humbly repent before God and confess this to others. We're called to surrender. And when I, when I think about surrender and I think about submission to Jesus, sacrificing to live life the, the way that God's called me to live. I so often think of the story I heard as a teenager of this young African pastor who was martyred in Zimbabwe. Following his death, the following was found in his writings. He says, I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. 
The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his, and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognized or praised or rewarded. I live by faith. I lean on his presence. I walk by patience. I lift by prayer, and I labor by Holy Spirit power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road may be narrow, my way rough, my companions few, but my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear." I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of the adversary. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am simply a disciple of Jesus. I must give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors are clear. This is surrender. This is sacrifice. This is often so antithetical to the Christian living in North America. So the first basic, absolutely not novel thought that we must walk away with today is we must surrender. And it's basic Christianity. Everything I just read, basic Christianity. The second truth I want us to walk away with, Jesus surrendered for us. The judgment that we absolutely deserve has already been served on Jesus. <laughs> That's the best news you're ever going to hear. <laughs> Doesn't get any better. He surrendered his life perfectly to the Father in order to redeem us. In other words, Jesus experienced the greatest division so that by faith we can experience the greatest peace. In the Old Testament, God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in fiery judgment because of their rebellion, their pride, and their sin, which is a picture of what's going to happen to those who reject God's Son, Jesus, those who will remain in their sinful rebellion against God. One of the beauties found in the work and the mission of Jesus is that he came to endure the punishment that we deserve for our sinfulness. He came to bear it, to take on the wrath of God upon himself rather than to allow you to receive it. You see, we all deserve the judgment that Sodom and Gomorrah received. That would be just. Because we've all sinned against the creator of our world, the creator of all things. And so God must punish sin or else he'd cease to be just and he would cease to be holy. And he teaches all of this in his word. So in being judged by God, we get what we deserve. Ultimately, we get eternal death. But be reminded of the glorious and gracious truth that God so loved that broken, sinful, rebellious world that he gave his only perfect son that whoever believes in him will not experience this, this, this coming judgment that will not perish 
in the judgment of their death, but have eternal life, not eternal death. For God did not send his son into the world to further condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. And God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul continues, but it is only this that guarantees that we'll be saved from the wrath to come. So if we're to be faithful to Scripture, it's difficult to, to go at any length at all with the love of God without dealing with God's wrath as well because God's wrath is a function of His holiness and it's a function of His justice when it confronts rebellion. And all this is in us because we've all sinned in some way and in many ways. You see, the Bible teaches that we're all by nature children of wrath. We're objects of wrath, as, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. And so what's so marvelous is that this same God who has every just reason and cause to be angry is nevertheless the God of love, and it's that love that sent His Son on mission to save us and love us, and it's that love that sent the disciples, and it's that love, the same love towards us today, that compels us to go live lives on mission for Jesus Christ. So there will be division. There will be hostility. Don't swagger in it. Let it break your hearts and let it press you to further allegiance to Jesus Christ. This is obedient Christian mission. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for the, the spirit of compromise that is so prevalent in our hearts to be removed. I pray that your true peace would comfort us And that the gospel would continue to transform us. That it would make us tender. Yet at the same time very tough to endure. That we would live humble, obedient lives with our mouths full of the gospel. And that it would protect us from religious swagger. You would give us a marked tenderness that makes the gospel look so good. That allows tough words to be heard. Or protect us from cutting the ears off of people before they even have a chance to hear. Lord, help this gospel transform our hearts personally. Let it humble us personally. And let it embolden us, galvanize us as we go to live lives on mission for you. Lord, we do this by faith. Protect us when we do it outside of faith. Lord, help us surrender. Let us embrace sacrifice. 
change us as a church and individuals. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring the division for us so that we could understand true peace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, now we get to share in communion together. I want you to remember that idea that Jesus experienced the division that we deserve so that we can enjoy and experience unity with God and peace with God that we don't deserve. That's what we're acknowledging together here. Through the bread and through the wine, the bread representing the body of Christ, the juice and the wine symbolic of the blood of Christ. He surrendered. He sacrificed. This motivates and enables our surrender. We don't surrender to get God to act. We acknowledge that Christ fully surrendered himself to the Father so that we could be made alive and in response to his action that we remember now through communion, in response to this, we live lives of surrender and obedient, humble, faithful, full of faith, mission as Christians. Friends, let's just be normal Christians. Let's just be normal Christians. That's what we're called to be. Let's do that. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. May God add his special blessing to this time of remembering his work for us. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.